Uh, we will be continuing in a series of messages that we began before the holidays uh, in the letter from James. The letter from James is as candid and as direct as anything you'll read in the Bible. Um, he's very practical. Uh, he holds us accountable for many things, from how we handle trials to how we treat people who are different than we are, uh, all the way to how we use our words to either build up or tear down. He holds us accountable for these things. James confronts us, and he won't let us talk a good game while our life doesn't back it up. James demands something from us, something that we will call today real Christianity. And our text will be James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. It is on page 951 in the Pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. It'll be on the screens as well. And if you are able, will you please stand with me as we read our sacred text? I'll read it. I'll say a word of prayer, and then we'll do some preaching. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Listen to the perfect word of our perfect God. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of your son, Jesus, our Lord, with worship on our lips, with love in our heart, and with a sense of expectation and desperation. Lord, speak to us today, please. Use your word and by your spirit, sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. May the preacher decrease, that Christ may increase, that we might magnify him in this moment. Help us, Lord, to look like Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. And then you may be seated. America is changing. You may have noticed that. There is a secularizing shift that began a while ago that shows no signs of slowing down. A Pew Research Center survey from just two weeks ago, this is fresh off the press, finds that the religiously unaffiliated segment of the American public is six percentage points higher than it was five years ago and 10 points higher than a decade ago. Now, Christians continue to make up the majority of the U.S. populace, but their share of the adult population is 12 percentage points lower in 2021 than it was 10 years ago. And currently, about three in 10 U.S. adults are religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. These are people who describe themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular. 
when asked about their religious identity. And I bring these statistics to you to let you know we're, we're moving in the wrong direction. And as you hear that, you may think, well, in the United States, we're probably talking about places like Los Angeles or New York City, these large metropolitan cities far from here. But did you know, according to the Association of Religious Data Archives, 47% of Escambia County residents claim no religious affiliation. Half. Dr. Brian Knoll, our Bay Baptist Association director, has done extensive research in this area. And I was talking with him about this. He reported to me that when we account for all the lostness in our county, people who are nuns, N-O-N-E-S, they don't affiliate with anything, people who are religious but they don't follow Christ, and people who are Christian in name only, about three out of every four Escambia County residents are lost. I praise God, we've seen many people come to faith in Jesus Christ, but proportionately, we're seeing more lostness around us than ever before. And so what, what would we do? Well, first thing we're going to do is we're going to pray, amen? Uh, this coming Wednesday night, we'll be in this very room praying that this church will be on mission for Jesus, and we invite you to come and pray and praise the Lord with us. And then we got to go out and we got to share the gospel like never before. But even more than all of that, you know what we really need? We really need to look like Jesus in our everyday lives. Anybody agree with that? That our lifestyle, how we carry ourselves all the time, not just on Sunday morning, ought to reflect the glory of who Jesus is because can we really expect to win the world for Jesus when we look, speak, act, and respond just like the world does? Can we reasonably expect to influence people to become like Jesus if our lives look nothing like him at all? No. In our text today, James will hold up for us two ways to live. He will set before us one way that is selfish. He describes it as earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And then he will hold up another way, a more excellent way, a way that reflects the very character of our Lord. It is pure. It is peaceable. It is as though he's saying, since God is your father, child of God, Imitate him, look like him in your everyday life. Don't let the world shape you, but the word shape you. That's the idea. And if I had to summarize this passage in one sentence, here's how I'd describe it. He says, I'll say this, James is challenging his readers to demonstrate heavenly wisdom by the good conduct and purity and peacefulness rather than the demonic wisdom of jealousy and strife. And from that, we can draw the essence of the sermon in a sentence. You have it in your notes here. This is, this is essentially what I will say to you the rest of this message. Show the world the beauty of Jesus. Show the world just how beautiful he is how glorious he is, how majestic he is. 
And James has this clear goal. He wants us to live countercultural Christian lives. He wants us to demonstrate Christ likeness in our thoughts, in our desires, in our actions. We're being called upon in this passage to be meek, to be pure, to be peaceable and gentle. And we're being told by God through James to display, to show the very character of Jesus. In this passage, we'll see three things today. First, we'll see a call to wisdom, and then we'll look at a counterfeit wisdom. And then finally, we'll conclude with a Christ-glorifying wisdom. And my aim is that as we begin this year, we'll heed the words of Scripture, we'll resist our own flesh that leads us astray, and we will show the world, this dark and dying world, by our peaceability and our gentleness, just how glorious the Prince of Peace really is. But look with me first at a call to wisdom in verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James begins this section by asking something of a rhetorical question. I mean, who would answer yes to this? Who is wise and understanding among you? See, show of hands. It's a trap. <laughs> the moment you raise your hand and identify yourself, James will say, wisdom is not shown by saying you're wise, right? In that way, wisdom is like humility. It's, it proves to be very elusive to us. The very moment we think we've attained it, it's escaped us again. And so let's give something of a definition to wisdom. The wisdom that's from above, what it really is, it's a capacity to understand God's will and to live skillfully in it. When we're talking about wisdom, we're discussing something that's, generally speaking, the capacity to understand God's will and to live skillfully in it. This is why he says in verse 13 at the latter phrase, by his good conduct... Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In fact, in the Greek New Testament, the verb show is the very first word after the question. He says in the original, who is wise and understanding among you? Show it. Of course, James here is returning to a recurring theme in this letter, namely that you and I must walk the talk. Apparently, James is from the great state of Missouri. Right, Brad? We have some, some people, native, uh, native Missouriites. I don't know how you say it. The show me state, am I correct in that? James wants us to show it. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. If you turn back one page, he says, essentially, don't tell me you have faith. Show me. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, parenthetically, if you can. And I will show you my faith by my works. That's James. If you ask James, if you, have, if you ask most kids what their favorite activity is in school, they'll say recess or PE. You know what James would say? Show and tell. Dad joke. Okay. All right. He's obsessed 
He is literally obsessed with Christians showing the onlooking world the glory of Christ. He says, don't take your Christianity and hide it in a bottle and keep it to yourself and only bring it out in your daily devotions. He's saying, take it out with you into this dark world where people are going to hell and show them Jesus. From this, we learn something very important about wisdom. It's more than just an abstract concept. It's more than just a theoretical thing that we think about in our mind. It's concrete. It's demonstrable. It can be seen in our actions and heard in the way that we speak. Said another way, and this is in your notes, I believe, wisdom is more than what you know. It's what you show. You can put faith in there as well, or real Christianity as well. Real Christianity. It's more than what you know. It's what you show. The primary command in this passage that we're reading is show. Verse 13, let him show, let him display his works in the meekness of wisdom. That is to say, good works are to be done in a spirit of humility, a humility that is itself the very product of wisdom. In this text, James is telling us at least two things. He's saying true wisdom produces good works, And true wisdom produces humility. And so wisdom is concrete. It's not just theoretical. It's practical. It can be seen, heard, and experienced. And one thing that we can take away from that is that when we're practicing biblical wisdom, your spouse will see it. Your kids will see it. If you're really living the wisdom that James is talking about in this text, your neighbors will see it. And your coworkers will see it. Wisdom is concrete, but it is also comprehensive. It involves the mind, but it also involves the heart. Real Christianity is more than just what you know. It's what you desire. It changes what you value. Your relationship with Jesus, it changes what you choose, how you prefer I'm just saying real Christianity involves the whole heart, the whole inner being. This is why James concludes verse 13 the way that he does. Look at this last phrase. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works. How? In the meekness of wisdom. Now, you may have been thinking before, okay, your main point, show the world the beauty of Jesus. Uh, but where do you see Jesus in this passage? We read it very clear. Jesus' name is not mentioned there. This text is about wisdom. Did you know that James quotes and refers to Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7? He quotes it more frequently than any other biblical writer. 19 times in five chapters. Over and over and over again, He's referring to the teaching of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus, as he's writing to these believers. And it's just so clear to me that James has a vision of glory, of who Jesus is as he's writing this letter. He has a burden, as it were, that this flock would be like Jesus. And isn't that the same burden that we have at Hillcrest? We exist at Hillcrest to help people in doing what? 
becoming like Christ. Every sermon, every small group, every ministry is for the purpose of seeing you become more like Jesus, right? Our goal is that the mind of Jesus would be your mind, that you would think as he thinks, that the heart of Jesus would be your heart, that you would be just as he is. And now we have in our Bibles four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In those four books, we have 89 chapters total telling us what Jesus said and what Jesus did, who he is. And out of those 89 chapters, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. Did you know that? One place where Jesus himself is showing us his very heart. It is Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, a very familiar passage to us. Jesus says these words, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, here it is, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That passage, I am gentle and lowly in heart, Jesus says. That's the text that I'm referring to. And Dane Ortland recently wrote a book where he's commenting on this passage. Let's listen to his words. He says, in the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and he lets us peer way down into the core of who he is. We're not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We're not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We're not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart, letting Jesus set the terms. His surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And consequently, I see in our passage today, James 3, an illustration of that, the heart of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, his splendor, his glory, the very heart of our Savior. Because the word translated gentle in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 is the same root word that we have in our passage today, James chapter 3, where he says, in the meekness of wisdom. And what does it mean to be meek? This is a disposition to not be overly impressed by one's own self-importance. And if there ever was a person who had the right to be impressed by his own self-importance, wouldn't you agree that person would be Jesus? He's the very son of God. He is, and he alone, is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Only this Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews chapter one. And yet, the Bible tells us that though he was in the form of God, he did not account, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And taking the form of a servant, he was, being, he, he was born in the likeness of men, Philippians chapter two. That, right there, that inclination to not be overly impressed by one's own self-importance, that is meekness. 
That is the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians chapter 5. And it's the very word James uses to call us to a lifestyle of following Christ, a lifestyle of wisdom. I'm making the case that when James says, show his works in the meekness of wisdom, he's saying, by your lifestyle, display to the world the beautiful heart that Jesus has. He is meek, therefore, as his disciples, we ought to be as well. Amen? The essence of wisdom is to understand God's will and to live skillfully in it, and so we will do that. That's the call to wisdom. Next, let's look at a counterfeit wisdom. A counterfeit wisdom. In direct contrast to the meekness of Christ, which is majestic, which is glorious, which is beautiful, we see in this passage the ugliness of human sin. Look with me at verses 14 and 15, which begins with a conjunction. But... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be false. Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly. It is unspiritual. It is demonic. He moves from wisdom in general to talk about a specific kind of wisdom. He calls it not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, it is unspiritual, it is demonic. This is, this is important. God says to us, there is a kind of wisdom that you and I will be tempted to imbibe that is marked by bitter jealousy, that is marked by selfish ambition. And he says it's evil. And the thing to remember when dealing with a counterfeit, any counterfeit, whether it's counterfeit money, counterfeit wisdom, is that it looks like the real thing when you look at first glance, doesn't it? It appears to be real, but it isn't. Let me give an example of how this might work in real life. Uh, perhaps you see a person who's working very hard. <clears throat> Some may even call it workaholism, right? And I want to be very clear on the front end. Hard work is honorable, Hard work is commanded by the word of God. My father, Walter Mitchell, is here today. And if there's anything he taught me is that you got to work hard. He would walk around and tell me, son, if a man won't work, that man won't eat. Uh, and so hard work is very important. I don't want to be misunderstood. But there is a temptation, even in God's good things, to corrupt it. You all know what I'm talking about. We can take something good and make it an idol or make it something evil by our own hearts. And I believe that's the case with work. We can use it with all sorts of examples, but we can do that with work in this instance, what I'm describing here. Verse 14, verse 16, what is the motivation in our heart that could lead to workaholism? Well, he said bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And what would that sound like if someone was that, who was struggling with that sort of sin? It might sound like this. I have to look out for my interests. If I don't, no one else will. I must get what I deserve. I see my peers from school. I see the people who are hired with me. Some have surpassed me. Even though they have no more skills and they work no more than I do, I deserve more. I deserve what they have and I'm gonna get it. 
Now, we hear that. And we may be tempted to say something like this. Good for them. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what it means to be a red-blooded American. After all, good things come to those who go out and earn it. Yes, hard work is honorable. And ambition is good and godly. But this text is not talking about ambition. It's talking about selfish ambition, which is demonic. You see the difference. Ambition is about God's glory, about achieving what he's called you to for his glory and your good. Selfish ambition is about your glory, your desires, your ego, your status. It's about you. And where does that ultimately lead us? Look at verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Where there is evil root, there will be evil fruit. And the result of harboring that kind of poison in your heart is the fruit of disorder and every kind of vile practice. But we're disciples of Jesus. Amen? We love the Lord, and we want to become more and more like him. The character of Jesus is most evidently seen, as we saw before, in meekness, which is not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. But due to sin, due to corruption that still remains in us, we're prone to be selfish. This is why James will write just a few verses later, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, he'll write these words to Christians. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So it's, whether it's in the neighborhood HOA, which can get ugly, right? Or in the church business meeting, or in your home with your spouse and kids or at work with your supervisor, Christians must be on guard against bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It may be attractive and appealing to a worldly culture. It may even appeal to our flesh in the moment. But James says it is counterfeit. It is from the very pits of hell. And so I want you to examine yourselves as you hear this text today. Do you get angry when God blesses someone in a way that you want to be blessed? Do you become rude or mean-spirited as you seek to climb the ladder of power and position? Beloved, that wisdom is not from above. And just like jealousy led to Cain murdering his brother, if we're not on guard against it, we will tear each other apart, even in the church. That's why James writes to the church. And why? Why should we be any different from the world? Right there, that's why. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? The cross is the difference. Jesus died on the cross for all of our sins. 
He rose again mightily from the grave by the glory of the Father. And so we too might walk in newness of life, Romans chapter 6, right? And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. He poured out the Holy Spirit so that all who believe in him have the helper, the comforter living on the inside of them so that we can think differently and we can desire differently and we can choose differently. Don't ever let anybody tell you that a Christian is just like anybody else. They're just forgiven. You are a new creation. Amen? Jesus tells us that those who follow him will be different. They must take up their cross daily, deny themselves, follow him. The gospel is not just good news telling us how to be forgiven. The gospel is good news telling us how to live now that we are forgiven. And it reminds us that we are in Jesus and Jesus is in us. So we can choose beauty over ashes. We can choose glory over shame. We can choose the wisdom from above rather than the wisdom that's from below. And I'm saying that wisdom is Christ glorifying wisdom. Look at verse 17. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of good mercy, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We've seen a call to wisdom, a counterfeit wisdom, and now, based off this verse, we'll look at a Christ-glorifying wisdom. You may be asking yourself, Mitchell, you, you bump your head again. We read verse 17. I didn't hear Christ in there. I didn't hear glory in there. What do you, why, what's this obsession with glory? Remember I talked about displaying or showing when we reject counterfeit wisdom, when we say, you know what, I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to be jealous of other people. And when we embrace verse 17, the wisdom that we find there, we're displaying something. Remember, James is from the show me state. His favorite activity, show and tell. His point and my point is that we are to show the onlooking world who Christ is. They can't see Jesus, but they can see you. Your unbelieving neighbor can't see Jesus, but they can see you. Your coworker who uses profanity all the time and you just want them to stop. They, they don't act like Christ at all it's because they're lost. You know what? They can't see Jesus, but they can see you. And Jesus, this is my point, verse 17 is seen in this verse. The very character of Jesus is listed in verse 17. Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Jesus is sinless and pure. Jesus is peaceable. He doesn't go around picking fights. He's, he's not a coward. We see Jesus is very bold, but his pursuit is not discord and fighting. His pursuit is peace. Jesus is the prince of peace. He himself will say to us, blessed are the peacemakers. And so James is showing us in this verse, namely the very character of Jesus, that we are to embody this character and to display it to the world. And that's what it means to glorify. 
Glorify is a very churchy word. You don't hear that too often. It's a biblical word. To glorify Christ is to make him look like what he really is. He is pure. He is peaceable. And when we display that in our lives, we're showing this lost, dying world that Jesus is that way. This is how it might work out in a practical example. Let's say you go to work tomorrow, uh, Monday. Everybody loves Mondays. And you go in and your, and your supervisor calls you in the office, and I'm going to use my best supervisor voice, so bear with me. <clears throat> it says something like this. We're behind the eight ball. And we have tons of accounts that need work. I need everyone in the branch to work mandatory overtime this week. And they say, now get out. Now, for context, let's just say you're a superstar at your job. You're always rocking it because everybody at Hillcrest is a superstar. Amen. You go above and beyond. You're reliable. You work very hard. You get good results. But you notice not a few of your coworkers are lazy. Is that lazy? They don't do what you do. You notice that, but you still work hard. You do what you're supposed to do. Now, how would someone who's embracing counterfeit wisdom, respond to their boss in a situation like that. Remember, counterfeit wisdom is marked by jealousy, selfish ambition. They might say something like this. No, there's no way I'm working mandatory overtime. I work hard every day. What you need to do is go get those bums who are being lazy all the time and get on it, make them work overtime. I do in eight hours what it takes them 20 hours to do. And then you shut the door. Notice again the focus on the self. I do my job the right way. I don't deserve mandatory overtime. I am right and you are wrong. Which, if we're honest, every single one of us, as I was saying that, in your heart you're thinking, that's right. Tell them. But it's selfish. (laughs) There's no look to God's glory in there. This is my point. The wisdom from above, verse 17, I have the same Bible y'all have, is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. Did you know that phrase, open to reason, in the Greek New Testament is one word used only here in James chapter 3. It means compliant. It means obedient. Some of your translations will say submissive or willing to yield, accommodating. And I know I said the S word in church, submissive. It's ugly to some of us. But did you know Jesus submitted to his parents, Luke 2.51, all the kids in the room. The Lord Jesus, as a man, submitted to the will of the Father, Matthew 26, 39. What did he say? Not my will, Father, but yours be done. And Jesus even submitted to the religious and political authorities who sought to unjustly crucify him, didn't he? 1 Peter 2, 20, where he says, you are to follow his example. Now, if the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, submitted like that, what is your excuse and what is mine? 
Verse 17 is the key. Christ-like virtue, or what I am calling here, Christ-glorifying wisdom, needs to be brought to bear in our work relationship. So let's go back to the situation with the boss. It's like reversing in time. We're going to take out the person with worldly wisdom, and we're going to put in the person with Christ-glorifying wisdom. i got to use my supervisor voice again. We're behind the eight ball. We have tons of accounts that need work this week. I need everyone in the branch to work mandatory overtime this week. Christ-glorifying wisdom. Jesus on display, what might someone like that say? It might, they might say something like this. Boss, you know, I really hadn't planned on working overtime this week. But if you really need me, I'm happy to come in and help the company. What can we do to avoid this in the future? How can I influence our team to produce even more? You see the difference? There's peace, peaceability in that response. There's gentleness there. There's a willingness to yield there. That response reflects the character of Jesus in James 3, 13 through 18. This is what we're doing in Bible study. I hope you just don't read a passage, say, yeah, that's nice. I'm going to close it and go live the exact same way. No, we are to see Christ in the text, how he's calling us to live, and then go out and do likewise. Amen? What I'm describing is just really showing grace to people who don't deserve it. What I'm saying is be beautiful. Not by putting on makeup or cologne, but by living a life that looks just like Jesus. That's why we sang, fairest Lord Jesus. There's evidence in scripture that Jesus probably wasn't the most handsome man that ever lived. But my, was he attractive, wasn't he? His character, who he was, and who he is is beautiful to us. And he is gentle. James uses the verb, uh, the, the adjective, excuse me, gentle in verse 17, epi case, which means not insisting on every right of law or custom. Are y'all, y'all still listening? Sometimes being like Christ will mean you'll get the short end of the stick. Sometimes displaying the glory and beauty of Jesus will mean not demanding your rights. I know that because of a brief, very brief passage in Matthew 17. We're going to turn to it just as an example and see if we can draw some things from it, from the very life of Jesus. This is a passage of scripture that perhaps we have read before, but we just, we just kind of read it and we gloss over it. I want to make some reference to it. Matthew 17 Verse 24 and following. The Bible says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? He said, from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. Verse 27, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that, give it to them for me and for yourself. We we read that before, and we kind of just gloss over it. 
because it doesn't seem to connect chronologically with what comes before or after, but it's in the Bible for a reason. Because as the very son of God, Jesus had the right to be tax exempt. And he could have demanded that right. It would not have been wrong for him to do so. But he does something greater, is my point. He does something even more beautiful. He relinquishes his right for something higher, for love. In verse 27, he says, not to give offense to them, to who? Who is them? Lost people. People who don't know who Jesus is. Sometimes we make sacrifices simply because we love lost people. Anybody in here love lost people? We love people who are on their way to hell. We love them enough to put their soul salvation over our own convenience and comfort. We know they're watching us. They're always watching us. I hope you know that. You know people are watching you, right? Let's give them something to see. Let's show them Jesus. What are you willing to give up for the benefit of lost people? And what are you willing to give up for the benefit of your brothers and sisters that they might grow into the image of Christ? In our flesh, we tend to insist on every comfort and convenience without exception, even if it creates a barrier to people coming to Jesus. In our flesh, we fight over every issue. In our flesh, we tend to make every hill a hill to die on. In our flesh, if we're honest, we tend to view every person that doesn't agree with us as the enemy. But Jesus wasn't that way. And so when we act that way, do we glorify him? Do we really make him look the way he is? No. So this year, as you go to work, As you go to the HOA meetings, I know they're tough. Show Jesus. Because we plant a seed. This is the point of verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We plant a seed every time we choose mercy over revenge and kindness over rudeness in the shopping mall or peace over conflict in our relationships. We plant a seed that will sprout up and bear fruit. And I'm just so glad to see y'all's faces today because I'm looking at a church that is peaceful. I've seen fights in church before. And Hillcrest is not that kind of church. And I'm just so grateful that y'all are people of peace. So let's go out and do more and more of that. I'm reminded of People in the Bible who saw Jesus for just how attractive he was. That woman at the well, who nobody wanted to be around. So much so that she went to the well at the dead heat of day. Jesus was attractive to her. So much so she went to her village and said, come see a man. And that wee little man, Zacchaeus, who was a crook, he ran up in a sycamore tree. Why? Because he wanted to see Jesus. And he had a life-changing encounter with the Lord of glory, didn't he? And what I'm saying to you is that people 
all around you want to see Jesus. It's like John chapter 12, where the Greeks came to Philip. And they said to Philip, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Every person you meet, every person you lock eyeballs with this year, whether they know it or not, whether they say it to you or not, you know what they really want? They want to see Jesus. So show it to them. Show them meekness and show them gentleness. Show them peacefulness. Hillcrest, show them the beauty of Jesus. This is God's word and let all who agree say amen.